it's amazing to be able to turn such a negative situation into a positive and to be able to turn around this narrative that we got handed, but do some good. Welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast with Hugo and Dahlia, two cancer survivors who are passionate in helping the lives of others. Nothing is off limits, so prepare yourself for tears, laughter and goosebumps. And Dahlia talking about poo. How are you doing, Hugo? I'm well, thanks, Dahlia. How are you? I'm doing absolutely dandy. Thanks for asking. <laughs> You're doing dandy. <laughs> I'm doing dandy. What even does dandy mean? I'll Google it later. Stay tuned. <laughs> so, on today's episode, we sat down with an inspirational young lady called Natalie Fornasia. And Natalie has battled stage four melanoma. And she's got quite an incredible journey with what she's had to overcome. And for those listening, melanoma is actually the most common cancer in young Australians, age 15 to 39. So it makes it pretty prevalent being in Australia that it is uh, it is something that we probably need to be talking about more. I think it's really good that the three of us have connected because we all have very sort of similar journeys. We've faced adversity, we've gone through it, and now we're um, taking the opportunity to spread awareness and to tell our stories. So without chewing everybody's ears off, let's dive into the episode because I can't wait for everyone to hear it. Natalie Fornasia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No worries. Did I pronounce that right? Fornasia? Yeah, so you got the Australian one. I can give you the proper Italian Venetian. I want to hear the, yeah, I want to hear the OG version, please. It is Fornasier. That's it. Ooh. Authentic Venetian uh, last name. I've got this. Let's hear it. Let's hear you uh, roll your R's, Hugo. <laughs> Fornasier. Yeah, that's not bad. That's good. <laughs> I love it. Good. Okay. So, look, it's great to have you on the show, Natalie. It's an absolute privilege to have you here and, and hear your story. Um, you. 25 Stay Alive generally is all about sort of uh, young adults uh, overcoming adversity and kind yeah. of uh, that we're not invincible and yes. uh, to be aware of your body and the fact so that true. you're 25. Yep, on the dot. I, I think you're the, <laughs> the, the first person that's actually been 25. Yeah. 25 Stay I'm Alive. Honored. I know, which is awesome. But you're probably the most relevant guest we've had and you've got a amazing story and quite a remarkable journey that you've had over the last sort of five years yeah and we'll definitely explore that in a second um but before we do i just want to get to know sort of you a bit better and i suppose a good place to start Mm -hmm. is what is the what does the ideal day look like for natalie for nezia (laughs) (laughs) that was definitely (laughs) shaking shaking your hands doesn't mean that you're doing it right sorry it will sound more italian if i shake my hand (laughs) give me those yeah that um my ideal day is i'm assuming i can go wherever i want in the world so i'm going to venice uh, where I spent seven months on exchange. Um, it is my favourite place on this entire planet. Um, it is gorgeous and stunning and everything that I've ever dreamed of. So I would be waking up there to the sounds of the gondolieri screaming at each other in Italian um, and I would have a day surrounded by my loved ones and it would be a day of just joy and eating food and walking around, like experiencing the city and like, yeah, just living the Italian life. Sounds good. Which Sounds is amazing. The dream for me. <laughs> I really want to hear these like uh, gondolieri guys having their arguments. I feel like oh, it's like a Netflix series in the making. Oh, it is honestly. <laughs> it is, you, like it's everywhere. Like once you like tune into Venice and like the background noises that it has, it's all you actually ever hear. 
And like, <laughs> like it's so true. All you ever hear them is they're either singing or they're yelling at each other because like someone didn't pay the correct fare or something like that, which is just hilarious in itself. But yeah, totally Netflix series in the making. Someone's <laughs> taking his gondola down a one-way road or something. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. And so what I've decided what we've decided is that it'd be a good idea to have some sort of continuity, particular questions that we might ask all of our guests. So you're the first one. Um, And my question to you is, (laughs) are you a scruncher or a folder when you're doing a poo? Uh, This is different. Poos, poos specifically. Poos specifically, I'm a folder. Oh, very, very nice. Yes. Well we, 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 we haven't done this yet. Yeah, what so. about you guys? I'm definitely a folder, but Amber, my partner, accuses me that I always use way too much toilet paper, so I think I fold too much. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm like that too. I would say probably that me as well. I probably used to Amber, use Amber's like, you only need that, this much toilet yeah, paper. I'm yeah, like wrapping around my hand. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Dahlia? Yeah. Um, well, I don't do poos. <laughs> not right now <laughs> at the moment, but, no. Check at the moment. but when I am like doing my version of a poo which is emptying my bag into the toilet yeah. you have to fold there's no <laughs> choice you can't be scrunching because literally poo will go everywhere so that's a definite fold like yeah. that's you know to keep the bathroom clean yeah no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, just a bit of background on this for the listeners. The reason why uh, Dahlia also has wanted to introduce this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. Um, but look, it's very real. It's, it's purely to, to have the discussion and it's like a lot of things. There's, there's so many taboo topics out there. And for some reason, poo is just an example of one of those. So true though. Um, where people don't talk about poo. No, not at all. I think it's just this weird, like this thing that just is just unspoken. Like that's poos and periods. Yep, poos and, and double periods. P's. Unspoken. I know, and it's it's funny. I was saying to Dahlia offline, it's something that showers, for example. If I say, yeah. um, "Oh, do you shower in the morning or night?" or "Did you ever shower?" I would like it's not that weird. It's oh, no, yeah, no, not at all. But, like that's a very personal thing. You're completely naked. You're yep. having a shower, yep. and if someone talks about poo, it's kind of like, "Oh, I don't want to talk about that." It's weird. Which is something <laughs> that every single human being has to do because it's and part animal of our and everything. Yeah, they said that yesterday. Exactly the same. Like. It's a, you have to do it. If you're not like, doing it, exactly. you're unwell. Exactly. You are unwell. Like, you have to do it. And then so by hopefully generating this discussion or making it more common to talk about, people might kind of realise that, you know, going six, seven times a day might not be normal. Yes. Distances might not be normal. So just, it's, I guess, getting that yeah, discussion yeah. going around oh, to, get, to get people talking. So that's why yeah, I asked you that question. Cool. Stamping, out that sti- stamping out that stigma because it's just... It's just a natural bodily function and we all just need to get over right. it. Yep, so sure. <laughs> and right. uh, as you can see, Natalie, Dally and I can talk about poo for hours, so we'll move I'm, on. I'm, very, I'm, very pa- I'm a passionate, passionate poo talker. So, yeah. um, so then we'll move on a little bit. And so I suppose I discovered you and your story, like a lot of people, um, <laughs> through Shameless. Um, and Shameless is a podcast, a very well-known podcast. Yes. And they got you on their show and shared your story. And yep. I think... I, uh, my partner, who's a huge fan of Shameless, said, you have to listen to this story from this girl, young girl called Natalie. She's got oh. such an amazing uh, inspirational story. And so I did. Cheers, and, uh, Amber. Yeah, cheers, yeah, Amber. Cheers, Amber. <laughs> and then I had to reach out to you. Um, amazing. And I suppose what uh, got me, I guess, so much with this whole um, Shameless interview, yep. um, and we spoke a bit offline about this, is that you said, well, first of all, the, the two girls on Shameless, um, they said they interview 
Instagram influencers, yeah. people with millions of followers and this huge following. And they said, well, first of all, you've influenced them more. Yeah. Than- that was in yeah. itself, like hearing that just from just an ordinary person when like you haven't set out your goal is not to be an Instagram mm. influencer or anything like that. But to be able to like to hear someone say to you, you've influenced how I live my life. Like mm. that was, I remember like thinking while I was recording, I was like, that is huge. Like, wow, I'm so grateful for you saying that. Do you see yourself as an influencer? No, <laughs> like I really don't. I just see myself as someone who has a story to share. And if that can change the way that people think about themselves health wise, then that's all I want. But mm. I wouldn't consider myself like a yeah. influencer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not yet. Not well. Okay, well, not yet. <laughs> and I think what uh, what was more striking with with that is that, and you said, correct me if I'm wrong here, Natalie, but you said, and uh, we use the same podcast host as Shameless do, and a lot of people do, and it basically tracks how many people listen to episodes yeah. and yeah. Um, sort of times or when you release the episodes. And you said the girls told you that the first sort of three days, yeah, um, like about a week, uh, roughly yeah, that yeah. so short time period, the I guess the number of these active listeners for this particular episode, which was your story, was pretty much all the most they ever had. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I don't know numbers, but I just know that the girls were like, your episode definitely hit a chord with the listeners out there and it was one of the most successful and that in itself just... Amazing. Yeah, it still shocks me Jeepers. to this day. But I think that's a good thing because I think that means that people are wanting to listen to people's stories, which is great because there's yeah. so many people like myself out there, you girls, you guys included, who are here to share mm. and we're here to like stamp out those stigmas and yeah. we're here to redefine what cancer is. I love that. Yeah. I love it. And I love how real people such as yourself yeah. can really, I guess, impact so many people's lives. Yeah. So people listening to this podcast or other podcasts like Shana, they listen to your story and they're so intrigued and fascinated oh, by it. Insane. Which we, is awesome. We had a, um, the shameless group, they have a podcast group. And um, some girl posted in there, I think it was last week, and it completely blew me away. It was like, oh, I just went to go get my regular, like I just wanted to post saying, I went and got my skin check. And she, the clinic that she went to was in Melbourne. And the, uh, I think it was the dermatologist or doctor goes, oh, let me guess. Um, did you listen? Are you doing this because you listen to a podcast? And the girl was like, yeah, I did. Oh. And she goes, oh, I've had at least 25 girls wow. come in since just this telling me they've come to get their skin checked That's just because from a podcast. Listening and then acting on what you're saying is just like makes it all feel just so much worth, so much more worthwhile going through what we've been through. So I was talking to Hugo yesterday offline and we were saying that it's amazing to be able to turn such a negative situation into a positive and to be able to turn around this narrative that we got handed but do some good. And it just like I think it just redefines what our purpose in life what we mm. kind of thought we were here for yeah. and what we're actually doing. Yeah. And like, and I often get asked, it's like, oh, did you have like an epiphany moment? Like when you got sick and it's like, it's not so much an epiphany being like, oh my God, like I need to live my life now. I think it's just this appreciation for life is just a lot more strong than like when you just like mm. living life ordinarily, you don't second, you don't think about, oh my God, like I can get hit by a bus every night. Like that's not in your frame of mind. But when you get told that you get sick, I think it is just this sense of your appreciation for you being present is a lot more alive in you. And so I think it's just that, that you just wake up every day, grateful that you actually woke up. 
Yeah. I, yeah. I feel more present in the day-to-days. Like you're much more appreciative for like what is happening to you that day. And I think like we didn't choose these set of circumstances, but the three of us have obviously opted to take on board what's happening to us, accept it, and then opt to do something with it. And so yeah. my question to you is when or why or what kind of like triggered, when did, when did you sort of become proactive about awareness and, you know, what was it that sort of got you motivated? I guess what really hit it off was when I got diagnosed a second time, there wasn't enough out there for young women particularly. And I think that was that moment where I was just like, this just gives me the chance to actually, like I was just saying before, reinvent the narrative, change what's happened to me and use it for good. And I think that in itself is also what helped me come to terms with my diagnosis as well Mm. because getting told you have melanoma a cancer that a lot of people think just has to be on your skin in my lungs for me that was a really I guess I don't even know how to describe it it was a very big like wake up call moment because I knew it could come back um but I also being told that it's in a in an organ that was like in itself a really hard thing for me to process so being able to then use my voice in a way that I was able to educate. I think I just naturally just jumped on board with it because I was just like, look, I'm all here. I don't want to let cancer define my life. Like I'm sick and tired of people just pigeonholing me. Well, like I'm sure you guys would understand. Mm, As soon as you get told the cancer word or people say that you've got cancer, it's like they're over in that box. And I was like, well, I don't want that to happen to me. And considering this is going to be the second time that I'm going through this, I was like, well, why not just make a campaign about it why not just educate people along the way lisa was there at the right time what we like the message that there was like that opportunity to do what we're doing hadn't been done yet and yeah i think it everything just kind of fell into place which is kind of great but also kind of horrible because i needed to get sick a second time for it to happen but that's okay. Like I'm all right with that because <laughs> like we're doing good things. So Natalie, take us back a bit to when you were first diagnosed. Now I know you were just talking briefly about the differences when you were diagnosed a second time and, yep. and what that's like mentally, but yep. take me back to, to when you were first diagnosed that first time. I understand you're only 20. Yes, I was 20. You were uh, on a top deck tour in, I was, in yeah, Europe I was. and cancer probably wasn't really on your mind. No, it really wasn't. So the whole, what, made me realize that something was up is that I was in Greece and I woke up one morning and I had 52 bruises all over my legs and in my gut I just I knew something was wrong because I was just like that's not normal I asked everybody I was like did I sleepwalk I wasn't drinking the night previously so I was like this doesn't make sense and then in my gut I just had that that feeling that I was like something's wrong and instinctively I linked it to my mole that I had on my toe because the mole had started changing maybe in the last two to three weeks that I was overseas. And I was just like, oh, this isn't good. Like I'd already made like a point in my mind to be like, okay, I'm going to go get it checked when I get home. But the bruises, that just like kind of set me on edge. Um, I was two weeks away from Did you know much about melanoma prior to that? Um, I knew what it was. I knew what it could do, but I didn't really know about just how severe it could be. And I think I kind of was naive in the sense that I just thought that it had to do with skin as so many people do. Mm. Um, They just think it's just a surface level skin cancer. So I was 20. I went home. I went to the GP and the GP instantly looked at the mole and said, nah, you got to go to a dermatologist like straight away. It does not look good. 
the toe in question is the was the fourth toe on my right foot. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. And fourth toe on your right foot. Okay, yeah. okay got it. <laughs> and the mole was about the size of a fi- of like your pinky fingernail. So it was like quite a large mole. And it'd been there maybe, I wasn't born with it. My mum says that I um, developed it maybe when I was around about like four or five. What pretty much has happened is like it started growing like a volcano. So it actually started getting quite pointy and it was like that was not, that was the sign that the GP was like, no, you got to go dermatologist. Two days later, I was in the dermatologist's office. He looks at it and he goes, it doesn't even take a sample yet. And he goes, you need to see an oncologist. And I was like, okay. My mum was in hysterics because like no one expects to be like, you sitting in a derm's mm. office. Well, it's especially you've just gone from a 20-year-old yeah, in right? Europe on a top deck to discovering 52 bruises. And how was the time frame from getting back to Australia and then finding yourself in that oncologist's office? Less than a month. Less it was less month, than a month. Yeah. Um, it, I was pretty proactive about going to get it checked because I just, in my gut, I had that feeling that I was like, yeah. something's off. And then I went to see, I saw the oncologist maybe a week later. She booked me in for surgery the next day. She was like, that thing's coming out. And it comes out tomorrow at 10 a.m. I'd never had surgery before in my life. Wow. But yeah, and then pretty much from there, it was, Natalie, you have, it came back as melanoma. And she goes, Natalie, I'm really sorry to say, but the melanoma has deposited one millimeter into my lymph nodes one millimeter wow. like that's it that's not all much. that was there not much but because it's one millimeter that means we need to get rid of every single lymph node and i can um, actually i can actually relate to that natalie because i um when my testicular cancer spread to my lymph nodes yeah i think it was only like two enlarged lymph nodes that yeah. they kind of identified yeah and it wasn't even that enlarged either no. compared to what it can be and then yeah. so similar to you then that to rip out every one of my abdominal lymph yeah. nodes. It's like, it seems excessive, but yeah. I know. And so pretty much what happened, she said, I'm going to give you a couple of weeks. You can decide what we do, but what she would like to do is that I want, she wanted to amputate the toe and she wanted to completely dissect every single lymph node in my right groin. And at 20, I was like, how do I make a decision like that? Mm. How do I say yes to being cut open and just having all of these things taken out of me because, like, there was no guarantee as to whether it, they would 100% get it or not. Yeah, for sure. Which later we find out that four years later down the track it came back. So, yeah, I said ended up saying, yes, you can cut out all the lymph nodes, meaning that I will get lymphedema, which is what I live with now. And I said yes to amputating my toe. So, yeah. Wow. And it's, it's, I shouldn't say it's funny, but you now look back on that and as we'll find out, yeah. the journey you go through you probably look back at, you know, an amputated toe, which is... Oh, yeah. I was in, like, I was so caught up on that fact. Yeah. And yet now I could not care less. I know. It's, right? it's And it's like, I think you touched it before. It's like how, you know, every, you put everything in perspective. And yeah. it's like when you go through such extreme things that you've gone through, yeah. you look back at other things and it's kind of like almost, I can once again relate to you taking your toe out. For me, it was me... <laughs> me losing a, a, my testicle. Yeah. Um, and I look at the time, it's yep. kind of like, I'm losing a testicle. This is a yep, huge deal. Right? But it's, I literally look back at that now and it's so you insignificant just, yeah. that I forget, I almost forget about it. Yeah. So true. Like I don't even register. Like I look at people when they have 10 toes and I watch the mid thongs and I'm like, that just looks weird. Because, like, <laughs> like, they know that's not real, but that like looks weird to me because I'm used to seeing nine toes every yeah. day. So I'm just like, that's just bizarre. Look, it's a new normal. You've learned yeah. to live with your new normal. Yeah. Nine is the new 10. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As we've discovered that when you eventually go through more significant things in life, yeah. it puts everything in perspective. And so, so after your first, uh, your first, I suppose, battle with, with that cancer and, and fast forwarding a bit, and then you kind of had your, uh, had that major, major surgery, removed your lymph nodes, you had follow-up scans. And then yeah. I suppose fast tracking four years later, yeah. you kind of almost went on your journey the way you went about it yeah. and found, uh, you know, at this stage you were almost approaching a five-year clear CT scan. And then so it's, uh, unfortunately <laughs> when you, uh, you were diagnosed again or you had yeah. a relapse. She did a Hugo. Uh, yeah, she, she I did, did a <laughs> Yeah. And so I suppose my question there is, having experienced it myself, what was it like for you from when you were first diagnosed with mm. cancer as a 20-year-old, yeah. having to process all of that yeah. and then what you had been through and what you had learned about cancer, but then... Was it more difficult? Was it a different feeling? How, how do you describe the relapse feeling of saying, look, sorry, Natalie, you've got cancer again. again. <laughs> what, what was that like? For me, it was shock and it was anger. Like I wasn't angry the first time because I just, I didn't have anything to be angry about. I was too scared about what my situation was going to be. But this time I felt anger, shock and guilt. Guilt is a big one. So I felt guilty for being the sick one in the family yet again and dragging down all the people that have gone through it with me once, mm. having to be like, well, guys, it's not done. There's round two. Yeah, yeah. And I, that for me is just something that I constantly think about and struggle with every day because it's like having your parents constantly worry about you to an, a level that no parent should have to, right? Yeah. Watching your brother struggle with your diagnosis because he can't do anything for you. Having your boyfriend absolutely uplift his, uplift his life to come and move overseas and be with you when your relationship is so new. Mm. So there was all of this anger and guilt, like, and I got so mad at myself. And this is something that I think people with cancer can somewhat understand is that you just get mad at yourself because you're like, you did this, right? Yeah. But you had no control over yeah, it the, whatsoever. Exactly. And you're just like, how fucking guilty do I feel being like, I'm the cause of everybody's worries and troubles, but like I didn't work, like I couldn't talk to myself inside being like, okay, you cells don't fuck up now and yeah. turn cancerous. And so for me, that was just this huge sense of like, for fuck's sake, like, I didn't want to drag everybody down this rabbit hole once again. And considering this time was a lot scarier, mm. I just felt this sense of immense guilt that would follow me around, especially for the first six months, because it was constant. It was like I was constantly in hospital. I was constantly going to the doctors because something was wrong. I was, no one could t give me certain answers. We were like, my treatment was like, on a probability scale of 50-50. So there was just this worry and I knew that everyone around me was worried too. Mm. Just having to carry other people's pain is mm. something that I guess a lot of people don't acknowledge with cancer. That's true, yeah. Is that we are carrying not only our pain, but we carry every single person who means something to us. We carry their yeah. pain too. It affects so much more than just us. So true. So it's not just a singular kind of this is this is this. Yeah. It is everybody because you will take on board the fear of your parents. You take on board the fear of your best friends, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Yeah, you yeah. take on board everything and like, it's a wonder we don't self-combust. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, exactly. It's so true. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's a great point and it's, a lot of people probably don't realise that. And then I think for me personally, sometimes that almost makes me want to try and be that, you know, oh no, I'm, I'm okay. And this time, you, you, yeah, you don't, you don't want to come across mm. as being, you know, I'm, I need help. Like we yeah. all need to see help or like we all seek help. But also you don't want to come across as being like, oh no, you can't tell yeah. me that you're upset. 
like you want to be still be able to be like okay I can see like you can still tell me that you're really worried about me recently when I went through um my second bout of bowel cancer in hospital and I was really struggling a lot and I just didn't see any improvement I lost about 20 kilos I was in hospital for about four weeks and I was really struggling however at the time I didn't really portray that I kind yeah. of you know when my dad was there or Amber was there I'd kind of be like you no, put on no. Front. yeah you put on yeah. the front I'm okay I'm okay but I think that was almost um and adversely affect my my mental health because oh, I was yeah. kind of putting on that it's front self-coping mechanism yeah. it's just like you put on this bullet armor just to be like no I'm fine like I'm fine yeah. just keep going like Alexander my boyfriend we call it autopilot mode and like when things oh, get like um that. yeah like when yeah. we even get told good news it's because we're so used to being told things that we don't even react to it anymore because it's just like autopilot mode. It's just yeah. something else that we get told or we deal with. So, Natalie, just touching on a point we just uh, raised there, just in regards to the mental health. Yeah. Uh, now, I know you've been pretty open with your story and you shared, obviously, your story is shameless um, yep. and your journey. But I guess going through these two different bouts of cancers, like we were just talking about before, how it affects so much more than just yourself, yep. the pressure of having to, I guess, be that rock for your, your parents, your family, your friends, your partner, and you're kind of that centre of attention as that cancer person. Yeah. How does that affect you mentally, I suppose, over your journey? How have you struggled and what has been the most challenging part for you? Well, my mental health has definitely taken uh, a beating. Like, there's no way that you could come out of this saying that you feel back to normal. And my mum made a good point when I, before I got diagnosed the second time, she was like, you've probably got PTSD, Natalie. Like you mm. have this huge sense, like this massive thing happened and then it evaporated. Mm. And so um, my mental health was just like this whole new side of me that I had to learn to become acquainted with Yeah, because a whole certain part of your brain on like the way that you talk to yourself, that changed overnight, right? As soon as you get told that you're sick, there are thoughts that come in going, oh, you're going to die. Or like, oh, you could die or the statistics of this or it's like, oh, you're having a shit day or like you're really down in the dumps. And I'd never really had that before. I did have anxiety. I had anxiety since I was maybe like nine. But like this, having cancer heightened it to a point where it was quite intense. Yeah. And you're so much younger than Hugo and I, well, maybe the same age as Hugo when he was first diagnosed. But like for me, I'm 28 and you were diagnosed at 20. Like if I had to go through what I've gone through now at 20, it would have been a very different story. Right? Like, I don't know how I managed it, but my parents have always said that like, I've got a pretty good level head, like a level head, like I'm quite logical. And so like, if I needed help or I needed to talk about it, I would seek it. Yeah. So I definitely did do that. And I'm very much like not necessarily going to a psychologist because I'm very open with my family and my boyfriend now and my friends. So I definitely used that more and I felt that helped me more rather than talking to a stranger. Yeah. And so just being able to articulate my feelings is, has been like the saviour because bottling it up is not healthy, as we all know with mental health. Yeah, like, it's yeah, not a good absolutely. thing to do. And it's important that you have those people around you that you feel comfortable enough to talk to them about stuff. But I'm not going to lie, there are times in your life where you literally do not want to talk to anyone. Mm. And, like, I've been there too, where it's just like I'm sick and tired of constantly talking about me, where it's just like you just you don't want to acknowledge it at all. And there yeah. were parts of my life after I got sick where I just, like, didn't want to acknowledge what had happened to me. 
because I was just like constantly seeing myself as like the before Natalie and the after Natalie. And so being a 20, 21 year old navigating that field, it was, it was hard. And then on top of it, it was the whole, like, whether I was ready to like, you know, fall in love or anything like that. That didn't Just happen. so much going on. There was so much like at 2021 is usually as it is when you enter your twenties, you, you, you're lost as it is. It's so much going on. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's hard enough as it is. <laughs> like, so I was just so confused. And I guess now my mental health at this stage, I can largely contribute my ability, like I guess my mental health being in a somewhat better place. It's not yeah. fabulous, but my partner, Alexander, he's been my rock through it all. Yeah. And having that person, which I didn't have the first time around, and we call him my guardian angel because we met before I was diagnosed the second time. Stop it. That's so <laughs> yeah. cute. Um, and it's just amazing that goes to show when you do find that person that you know you're going to be with for the rest of your life, yeah. just how much of a support network in that person itself like becomes. That's amazing. I think we can all, we can all relate to that. Obviously we've all gone through pretty significant yeah. adversity in our life yeah. and different cancers here and there, but where obviously your first time yeah. you didn't have that, that partner yeah. and it needed it. I for yep. my testicular cancer. I was 21, very similar yep. ages. I didn't know that. And then I met Amber after all yep. my treatment with testicular cancer, yep. but then having her by my side for my latest bowel cancer journey, and, you know, as cliche as it sounds, I couldn't have done it without her. So true. Um, but often, and I know Dali is very much the same with Dave, her husband, who's just always been there. And Dali and I often talk about how sometimes I forget that Amber would be hurting too and struggling too because yeah. no, it, so it seriously hurts them as well. And it's it such does. a big part of their life. Yep. But sometimes you get, get so consumed in how you're yep. feeling. Yeah. I feel like that's happened. that happened to us during IVF because – you know, I was just going in for my blood tests and like going through the process and just sort of like getting it done. And I didn't even stop once to think about how Dave might be feeling. I don't yeah, know yeah. why it wasn't because I was the one that was like injecting myself with needles yeah. and yeah, having yeah. to go through all of it. And I was just like, oh, you know, like whatever. He's just like coasting. But for him, he was, he ended up telling me afterwards that he was quite stressed out that whole week because he was really conscious of his own health and like you know had he known that we would be creating embryos right maybe he would have had a better diet or he wouldn't well not that he drinks that much but he would have considered a lot more and I guess I hadn't considered that and it made sense yeah I I don't know like if I wasn't even considering it how other people supposed to be able to consider Dave's feelings so true and like I can completely agree like with Alexander it felt like the Natalie show but Alexander Mm. was like a guest like a guest there (laughs) But like he was, but like as much as I say he was my rock, but then it's so true because people forget that we are a unit. Like I always call us the Alexander and I are a unit, but that it's like, how does, how is he coping? Yeah. How is he doing? How does he react? Because he always tells me like he gets, he can never sleep the night before we have like a results at appointment and like we both can never sleep. But like it's things like that, that it's just like you have to constantly remember as much as you're the person going through it, your significant others are just there as pretty much as much as they can be with you and for you. Absolutely. And I think that's a powerful part, partners, parents. Yeah. Um, and look, just touching on that, um, I know Dahlia just mentioned IVF and and she's open about her experience with IVF. Yeah. Uh, what what age or part of you in your journey? So you this was before your um, second second yep. 
before your second diagnosis. Yeah, so and last year. Last year. Yeah. And what was the process like at 24 yeah. um, going through oh, the IVF? It was bizarre. So the best way to back this story up is just to say that Alexander and I had met previously maybe four and a half months earlier in Venice. What? We met. Yeah. So this is like insane. I love that. And so Alexander and I met when we were on exchange in Venice and we pretty much knew like it was like love at first sight, if that even is a thing. For him it was, for me it wasn't. Oh my god, <laughs> in Venice laughing. how so cute. Um so I love this love story. Continue. Uh, I know, I love it. <laughs> and so pretty much like he told me, like when he told me he loved me, he's like, You're the one for me, and I knew that he was the one for me. When I had to tell him that I was sick, it was like my first instinct was to break up with him because we were such newbies in our relationship like three and a half four months in and all of a sudden he has to deal with this girl who lives in the other side of the world saying oh. hey i have stage four cancer <laughs> yeah, like, geez, yeah what the fuck was going on in his brain i could not tell you we have to facetime i have something to tell you <laughs> um, but that's actually like exactly right. it's not just your typical relationship no. in in australia oh, and it's God, someone no. and yeah it was the fact he lives he overseas and you, know, you said he's german he lives overseas he doesn't have a visa yeah. And you've been together for a few Never months. Never been goes, to Australia. <laughs> By the way, I've just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. It was nuts. And that's why my first knee-jerk reaction was just to go, like, the whole, if you love them, let them go. Because I was like, I could not put him through this. Yeah. I was like, there is no way someone as deserving and as beautiful a human as he should have to go through this. Because I've already been through it once. And I was like, I knew how hard it was going to get. And I only knew that this time would be harder. So I gave him that option and I said, look, the door is open. You are more than welcome to walk through it and I'm not going to hold any hard feelings against you. But he just goes to me, no. <laughs> like he just wow. said to me, no, it's not happening. And I was like, okay. I didn't talk to him for maybe like one or two days because I just didn't know what to say. Like I couldn't process myself. So I was like, how do I talk to the person that I love? And then finally I picked up the phone and we had a chat and he's just like, okay, so I'm going to come over and I will drop everything here and so he did come over and blessed in that he is um just gotten a job resigned was ready to pack up his life and he came over for the three months and so pretty much when I was diagnosed then the whole IVF in my mind I wasn't even thinking about a future with Alexander it almost kind of fast forwarded a typical relationship it's kind of instead of being together for four months it's kind of like you're together for four years yeah right Alexander was like, it's your decision. Like it's entirely whatever you want to do. He acknowledged that we were so brand new in our relationship, but in our guts, we both knew that like, once you start this journey together, there's a very like, like, you know, we'll be there at the end. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But like, I wasn't even thinking about IVF. It was my mum who actually once like, I literally had gotten told Natalie, you have stage four cancer. And then my mum just like five seconds after being told goes, I wanted to have IVF. And the doctor goes, oh yes, of course. Like that is an option if she wants it. And I'm just sitting there going, what? <laughs> like, there was so much information for me to process that they were like, go home, sleep on it, but you need to make a decision by tomorrow because we need to start you on treatment. But the yeah. IVF will only postpone the treatment for a week. I had like seven days to get all of those injections. They were straight away. I was on the intense, um, like straight on the highest dose of the drugs straight away. All of those things had to happen so quickly so like even the, the, what was scary for me was like, is this going to work even though we're not giving it enough time? So there was that thought in the back of my mind as well. Right. Am I going to put myself through all of this only for it to not work? Mm. And I was like, shit, like this is my, could be my only chance at har- like harvesting eggs. 
And so we did all of it. It was insane. And then I get handed a piece of paper being like, so who's going to be the guardian of your eggs if you die? And I just, (laughs) I remember sitting there going, what? And my mum was next to me and I was like, I said to my mum, I was like, do I write Alexander's name there or not? And mum was like, that's entirely up to you because like, and she just reminded me, she's like, you just don't know what the future's going to hold. So I wrote my mum's name, but then I said to my mum, I was like, if anything does happen to me, like you swear to me right now that you sign them over to him. And she was like, hundred percent, you have my word. Like I will do that. But it was such a fucking bizarre thing to go through. I'm getting chills. Like Like, just being like, if I die, my unborn babies go to my boyfriend that I've been dating for four and a half months. And on top of that, it's like you're in the space, you're 24 in the space of four years, you've gone through one bout of cancer. You've then had a relapse in between all that. You've kind of, met your now partner at the time you've been together for four months. It was just, you're, just, you're discussing kids and babies going through IVF. It's like a John Green movie on yeah. steroids. But yeah, no, it was full on. Were you successful with the IVS? So thank God huh. I was. They took 38 eggs after just a oh, yeah, Wow. I so I was very yeah. fertile. I don't, I don't know what that <laughs> means, but it sounds good. Me. No, they took 23 out of me and I thought I was a superstar. Right. Yeah, what they told me was is that in the space of five days, my ovaries grew from the size of, naturally they're walnuts, the size of grapefruits. Like wow. that's how big they yeah. were. Like I always said to Alexander, like, don't make me laugh because I feel like I'm going to pee myself because like they were <laughs> so big. Yeah, I've frozen some sperm. It's a lot, uh, a lot easier process. The process is a bit more you, you, go, you go into a seedy room with a seedy old porn magazine yeah. and... Uh, <laughs> And then just do the deed. Do, do the deed, drop off this little... While everyone's up walking around on the outside, like, please direct me to the elevator as he goes in the room. Like, oh I don't know what it is, but like for some reason you feel so seedy and like... It's, of course, you would. You're, yeah. you're dropping off this seedy so he's like, thanks very much. And you're just like putting a hoodie on, like walking, like, walking away. But I must ask, moving on from the, the IVF uh, situation a bit, you know, on the outside, you look fit and healthy and you, you look like nothing's wrong yeah. with you, but you've actually got so much going on. I have this really big motto in life is that you just have to treat people with kindness. You need to be nice because you cannot know. You possibly cannot know because I yeah, do. Sure. Walking down the street, mm. I look like a healthy, ordinary human. Yeah. Right? And so many people tell me that. And then I open my, my mouth and I tell them that I have stage four cancer. And they just look at me and their what? mouth drops and they're like, are you shitting me? Yeah. People think, and I think it's what we're fed in the media, if it's what we're fed overall, is but that cancer has an image. And mm. cancer means you're meant to have a bald head. You're meant to have no eyebrows. You're meant to have, be walking around mm. with your constantly attached to a tube, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I think when people have a, when someone says to them, oh, I have cancer, but I look healthy, they're just completely shocked because they're just like, well, you don't fit the bill. Yeah. Right? It, it, uh, Hugo and I don't fit the bill for bowel cancer. The majority of people with bowel cancer are 50 plus. So when, right? when you mention it to people, they're just like, no way. Is it in your family history? I'm like, no. Nah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I like the, Yeah. And I like what you're just saying there, Dali, is exactly right. We don't fit that bill of no. people with bowel cancer, but this is something that I think we're all passionate about is something like cancer doesn't discriminate, which is exactly why 25 Stay Alive is we're so passionate about it because you realize that there actually are a lot more people out yeah, there that you so don't realize and yeah. you don't, you don't realize there are so many people with their own story to tell against their own cancer journey. It's like, where are these people? You know, yeah. a, lot, a lot of the time they don't either have a platform to tell their story. So true. Um, and a lot of the time, a lot of these people do feel alone. 
And yeah, I know you were saying, saying at the start of this episode or offline how outside of the two of us ch- chatting to us. There hasn't been anyone. You haven't like, chatted I to really anyone. Haven't. Yeah. And like, I don't know, like I was saying, it's like, I'm not sure if that's me needing to be out there more or if it's just the way that it is. But yeah, it's, and so for me, like this is a refreshing chat because it's so hard to be able to relate to people my own age or just relate to people in general because the way I think about things is not how every other normal human being is going to think about things. Absolutely. Touching on that, so like we were just talking about like stereotypical images and like obviously it's very important to, a very important thing to you is tanning and the stereotypical language and images centred around tanning and I guess I just sort of want to ask you a little bit more about that and, and your experiences sort of transitioning from a person who, I mean, you were saying in the Shameless podcast that your mum always encouraged yep. you to be sun smart, but then to see people not wearing sunscreen. Oh, drives me mad, <laughs> um, which is just the way it is because in Australia, we just, it's the image that coming from Australia is, as soon as you say the words, if you're overseas and you say I'm Australian, and if you don't fit the bill of being tan or if you're not a larrikin they're like oh but what like why that in itself is a really big problem because Australians have been given this card that you need to be tan blonde beautiful because we are surrounded by the beach Mm. and it's it's just it, it frustrates me when I see things on Instagram and I see people who have a platform and they either give the wrong information or they just the their behavior and their language is just making the problem worse it's like well how do we battle that how do we change that conversation to show that sun safety isn't something that you can just switch on and off it's something that needs to be practiced every day which is why i love uh cool timer melanoma because obviously the big part of of that initiative is exactly that is almost changing that stigma of hey hang on a second Let's change that, you know, being tanned or having it's that brown beautiful. skin. That doesn't yeah. necessarily, yeah, if you're naturally tanned with olive skin, that's great. Yeah. But you shouldn't aspire to lie in the sun over summer for two hours at a time because you need sexy. to have that tan. Yeah. But like listening to your story now, it's just like, holy shit, I'm going to put sunscreen all the yeah. time. Or it's like, no, it's good. <laughs> no, it but like good, these little is. changes and that's the ripple effect yeah. you want to create. But that on, is. on that, of um, the question I have centered around that though is, your friends, I yep. like to think they'll put sunscreen on now, but how do you look at people who are out there with the tanning oils on or something like that? Oh, do you God. kind of, I know you've always been sun smart, but yep. do you kind of really look down, like not look down on those people, judge. but like judge them judge. is the good word. Um, look, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I do judge the people out there who do use tanning oils. And not judging in like a way where it's just like scathing, but it's just like you should know better. Yeah. Like it's the same when people smoke and it's like you should know they better. They should, you but know, they still do it. You know yeah. what can come from it. So why do you do it? It's addictive. Right? It's the exact same way. And I think especially for women, particularly in Australia, it's this need and want to conform to the beauty standards that we have in this country and the beauty standards, I guess, of the world that being tan equals being beautiful. And I guess it's the whole what Lisa and I are trying to do is we're just trying to break that cycle because sunscreen it's not this thing where we constantly think about it as like when being a kid, it's like a chore and like your mum's slapping it all over yeah. you being like, oh, mum, just let me go play in the beach. But it's so just, true. it's this thing where it's like, it was, it's there for a reason. And like, it's like, they're, it's like rashies, it's like hats, it's sunglasses. They've been made because, especially for Australia, it's like we have the highest rates of melanoma. We don't have an ozone layer over our country. The sun is a lot harsher here. It's just like those things, they're there to be used and worn and put on every day. 
but it's just it, the issue is is just are enough people doing it yeah yeah I don't know it's just like somehow cool I don't know I feel like as a as a little brown girl growing up like it wasn't cool to be brown I don't know what this like this obsession with like being dark and brown is like it's quite unsettling for well, me anyway yeah and in that sense it's like there are cultures out there who have dark skin who then want to bleach this, who have yeah. dark skin who want to bleach themselves so they fit in with white society. Mm. Like they, it, there is so much, there is a higher conversation that can be had about white women tanning themselves to make themselves look darker. Like there is a whole other avenue you can go down with that. Uh, up until recently, even like your story really hit yeah. home to me because I'm like, I am an idiot. Like I've gone yeah. through two lots of cancer. Yeah. I've gone through this, yet yeah. I still still, still go out right. in the sun and go, I don't have sunscreen. That's all right. It'll give me a brown look on my face. I still yeah. did that. When I say did that, I've changed now. Thank yeah. you, now, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, um, but it's true. And I hope that if I can change that, people listening now yeah. can kind of go, actually, I'm guilty of going, I don't put sunscreen all the time. I'm going to beat that sunscreen. You know what? How about I change that? Uh, yeah. And we need to all have this discussion to change that stigma. Yeah, well, it's just that. And it's just taking care of yourself. Like, do you value your skin? Your skin is the largest organ on your body. Mm. Like, we take care of ourselves every day in other ways. We shower, we put deodorant on, yeah. right? We like do all this other stuff. For women, we put makeup on. Why can't you just spare an extra five to 10 to seconds, put some sunscreen on, wear a t-shirt rather than a singlet top if it's 40 degrees outside so, so you don't true. burn your shoulders. I don't burn, but that doesn't mean that I'm still exactly. being affected by and the sun. And that's so true. That's another thing. Just because you don't burn doesn't mean you can't develop melanoma. Does fake tan have sunscreen in it? No, fake tan doesn't have sunscreen in it. I don't know. I'm such a brown weirdo, <laughs> just like I don't understand fake tan. It's <laughs> probably you don't have to use it. No, because I don't. I don't get it. I don't understand yeah. how tan works. Because I'm looking just like, I just quickly Googled sunscreen. There's a, a hole in the market, sexy sunscreen. Yes. Oh, let, let's, not, let's not disclose this in the podcast. This is an off-podcast <laughs> business idea now. <laughs> Anyone starts making sexy sunscreen, I'm going to trademark in that. The question I have now on the sunscreen topic, which obviously is very relevant, uh, very close to home for Natalie and something living in Australia, especially everyone should be all over. Yep. The 15 pluses, 30, oh, okay. 30 pluses, 50 pluses, yep. are you kind of 50 plus or 50 nothing? 50 plus or nothing. 50 plus every day because the UV in Australia, so I'll just go down this road quickly, but the normal UV where it is safe is three. Okay. That's three. You can check it on your app every day in the weather app on your iPhone. It'll tell you. In summer in Australia, the UV almost daily is between 14 to 15, okay? From a normal of what three should be, yeah, three wow. is the standard and it's up to 14 to 15. Wow. Just That's think epic. about the damage that can be doing can be done to your skin if you're outside for 15 to 20 minutes without sun protection. Hectic. And it doesn't have to be visible. Damage, sun damage is not all the time visible. It's not you burning. That's why you should wear 50 plus SPF factor yeah. every day. Like that's just one just of on the your reasons. face. It should be part of your morning yeah. routine. Part of your morning plus. routine, put it on. To me, it kind of seems a bit stupid. If you've got something with SPF 15, why not just do go the whole hog and put the 50 on? Have you heard of that saying three, the three S's in the morning? No, or the three. So S's? I don't know. If yeah, it's shit shave. That like rings. Okay, so now it's the quadruple S. Yeah, so don't know. Yeah. Shower, shit, shit shave, shave, and sunscreen. sunscreen. Yeah, look, I'm down with that. That would be. <laughs> I was about to say shower, shit, shave, and slap, and I was like, that sounds a bit. <laughs> nah, <that's laughs> do, do you ever get sick though uh, of talking about the sun and sunscreen? Oh, no, like the, if anything, I've become more educated in how yeah, the sun sure. works, which is great. I feel um, like you have the same connection with the sun that I do with poo now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so it's just like, you learn, 
what I've learned and like learned in terms of just like a lot of people ask us about the differences between physical and chemical sunscreen. And like, I've, I've learned about that. I've learned about what times to actually be out in the sun if you want to be out in the sun, because in, for example, in summer, there's actually a, a high UV peak period where it's just like, you should not be outside because it's actually not safe. It's like not safe for your skin. It's just not safe in general. Just learning about <laughs> things like that. But yeah, no, I don't get sick of it. So No, <laughs> it's good. And like, I think it's like what we were saying jokingly about the poo at the start mm. of the episode. It's just that having that more free-flowing discussion about it. And I think changing that stigma of like you've touched on, on why a tan is sexy 50 plus sunscreen should be no different than putting deodorant on it so just- true i say this all the time i said this to my friends i was like if you can put deodorant on because you don't want to smell why can't you put, put sunscreen on your face so you don't burn and like if you can do all the preventative measures of course there can be the chance that it might not be enough in my case that's what it was i did everything right and i still got it but 95 percent of the time you'll probably be okay yeah, yeah. well Natalie, I didn't bring any uh, sunscreen with me to Sydney. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I will be tomorrow morning. I'm going to go out and get some 50 I'll plus. I'll send you some recommendations. Send me some recommendations. I'm going to my get, pleasure. It's going to be my more, new morning routine. I'm putting on the 50 plus every Good. morning. Good. I think there's no excuses. <laughs> um, look, just so it's just a bit of a side. We'll um, hit away at a couple more questions just because I find it fascinating that the three of us can kind of yeah. compare with things. Um, the fear of death. Oh. during your journey yeah so two-pronged question when you first got diagnosed yeah when you were 20 did that ever cross your mind uh and if so how seriously did it cross your mind and then i suppose now you've had a when you had your yeah. second relapse how did that also play on your mind um i think the first time i was so wrapped up in having cancer that i was aware that i could die but i think because i it wasn't at like a stage, like stage four, like it wasn't intense. Like I thought I had a shot. So it wasn't as bad. Like I, I definitely did wake up from nightmares, had those anxiety attacks where I honestly, honest to God, felt like my stomach was falling out of my ass. Like mm. I had that. But this time around stage four, it was actually a lot worse yeah, because yeah. it was in a lung, like it was in an organ. You thought, hang on, this is... I was like yeah. freaking out and there were many nights where I would wake up right. crying because like I didn't even realise that my subconscious was mm. having really bad dreams. Alexander would wake up next to me and hold me because I was just in a state of constant like, I don't know if I'm going to see the next year. Yeah. And what was worse is because there was a period of time in my treatment, my treatment as all treatment can be, is you never know if it's going to work or not. So there was this whole anxiety as well on top of it as being like, I'm not going to find out straight away if my, if my immunotherapy is actually yeah. actively working. And during that time, I felt sick. Like I wanted to vomit. Can you explain to us what immunotherapy is? Because I, I actually don't know. Yeah, sure. So immunotherapy is basically a drug that comes in different shapes and forms. You're on one. Yeah, I'm, I'm on one. A yeah. very, uh, I suppose you could call it um, minimally invasive type right. one compared yeah. to one that you've been on. Yeah, and I'm on, uh, I'm on one as well, but I started off on two. And basically what it does, it just heightens your immune system and targets specific cells or specific, like where the problems are. And so for me, I was initially put on two drugs uh, called Obvito and Nivolumab, and that heightened my immune system. Like the best way for me to describe it is that regular people have immune systems on like say level 20. 
Yeah. When we're on immunotherapy, ours goes to like 180. Like, yeah, right. It's like essentially what immunotherapy does is that it hones in on what's bad and that's what's happening Could in my case anyway. Do you feel like you were level 180? The so, first so, sorry, so you're saying that I'm invincible. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just like, yeah, our immune systems are on a level of like, that's why when I had my first dose, my immune system attacked itself too much. Hence why I was in hospital because my immune system started attacking my liver, my lung and my other lymph nodes because it couldn't distinguish between what was good and what was bad. It just started going crazy and attacking everything. So within due course, yeah, eventually it settled down, but there's still a whole like list of side effects with treatment as it is. How is that administered? Um, I just get injected every two weeks by just a cannula. So I don't have a port or anything, just the simple needle into the arm. Just yeah. And how long is this treatment going to go for? So it, I've already been on it for a year and I will be on it for at least another year. So even though I did find out that the cancer is inactive, that doesn't change my treatment schedule. For everyone listening, um, Natalie did find out literally very recently that she's officially cancer free. Yeah. Which that's is right. amazing. And I think <laughs> yeah. that's a big, a big, big clap there. But um, the question I have on that though is that obviously that's exciting news. It's happy yep. news. You tell your family, you tell yep. your friends that, oh my God, congratulations. Let's have a, a cheers yeah. and a, yep. a champagne and yep. celebrate. <laughs> but because it's you've already relapsed yep. and because you still have some hurdles to jump, yep. very similar with my current situation, I'm cancer-free, but I'm not, I feel like I'm not as ecstatic as I should be. This is exactly what happened to me when he told me that he was like, okay, so in definition of like what cancer-free means in my case, it just means that the lymph nodes that did have the cancer in them did not come up on the report. So basically for the first time in a year, the report came back from the CT scan saying there is nothing that we have to report meaning that it is cancer-free, that there's nothing there. Of course, you can't cut me open and physically like biopsy yeah, yeah, every yeah. single cell because that's just not possible. Of course, yeah. It could still be there, it could be dormant, but for now it's just not there and it's not showing up on scans. But when he told me, like I was just like, cool, I am not finished with treatment. I have yeah. so much other things to do and this is what my friends were like, oh, like things go back to normal. And I was like, no, things don't go back to normal. Things actually stay very much the same. So I still have to do immunotherapy every two weeks for the next year. Yeah. I still have to do my three monthly scans. And the thing is, is that I could be cancer-free now, but in three months, you just don't know. And that's the thing. Nothing is for certain. Exactly. Nothing is for certain. Just in general, like if you yeah. lock into particular ideas and you're not able to sort of be flexible with that, that's where yeah. more anxiety can be built up. Exactly. So true. No, absolutely. And I think the big one there for me anyway is the optimism versus realism piece. Yeah. And so it's all good and well to be optimistic yeah, and say, so I'm cancer-free, I'm going to live till 90 and have a great old life. Yeah. But for people like you and I yeah. who have gone through two bouts of cancer, obviously yeah. Dahlia still being diagnosed with advanced bowel cancer at 27, yeah. to have that, I guess, overly optimistic mindset of, oh, I'll be fine, you kind of have to go, well, we're realistic it, in the yeah. fact that, look, things might happen. Exactly. And, and that's, that's our new normal that we've yeah. come, to, come to embrace is that, we acknowledge that we could live till we're 90, yeah. but we also acknowledge the fact that it very much could not work out that way and we could have cancer come back once, twice, or it could never come back again. And on that point though, Natalie, how do you then cope on your down days or what are some ways of kind of going, you know what, I do have some hurdles to jump through. I still have a lot of uncertainty. Yep. What do you do that helps you I with that? I am a big reader and a big writer. So if I just feel like the world is way too loud, I will 100% crack open a notepad and just write my feelings out or I'll read 
or I'm, I'm a bit of a drawer too. And I just feel like having that something that physically is like in my hands that helps because yeah. that detracts from what's going on in my brain. So like if I'm having a moment or like it's a really big freak out and I just, I need to ground myself, it's definitely, it's picking up something that I can do or I can read a hundred percent. And that helps. That's, that works for me. Yeah. 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 Love it. Love it. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that we could sit here and chat for about 18 hours, but I don't think anyone <laughs> wants to listen to an 18 hour podcast, unfortunately. No, that, no. That, that's exactly right. And look, I guess the point of today, uh, today's episode was exactly that to kind of have a bit of a more unique approach yeah. about what it's like, how we can relate to parts of what you're going through, how we generally are learning stuff too. Yeah, so but, true. but ultimately, like I said, at the very start of this episode, you fit the mould of 25 Stay Alive. <laughs> That's you, so cool. You are young. You are 25. Yeah. You can be our mascot. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I am down to that. And those who are listening, if they take only one piece of advice away from you yeah. or your mission, yeah. uh, what would that be? Listen to your body. It is your, You cannot put a price on your health. And it is your duty to do everything in your power to keep yourself as healthy as possible. So that would be my one takeaway. I love that. I love that. And for those listening who want to follow Natalie's journey, uh, they can do so on her Instagram page, which is Natalie Fornasia. Yeah, you got that. (laughs) (laughs) Should have put my Italian spin on it. Uh, Or Cool Timer Melanoma, which um, which is the foundation started by Lisa and Natalie is the face of that. Changing, changing the face of skin cancer and change the face of, uh, I guess, sun safety in general. So definitely follow those two pages and we uh, can't wait to follow your journey over Thank the next you. coming months. I, you know what? I'm going to do my own little like takeaway summary. What I've learned from Natalie today is that you don't need followers to influence people. Yes. Amen. So true. You know, if you can all, if we can all make the small changes in our life, look, if you go to the beach and someone, you're, I don't ever wear sunscreen. So if I am sitting there wearing sunscreen, I've got it with me. Well, that's one small change for me. And then maybe the person that's with me will also put on some sunscreen. So I think we have to remember that small changes go a long way. Absolutely. Ripple effect. Thanks so much for joining us, Natalie. Thank you so much, guys. You've been listening to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25 Stay Alive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.